Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Good morning. As, as Jim was praying, I remembered Delane. Uh, Delane was the uh, sweet grandma. She, would, she was younger than me, so she would be frustrated by my calling her the grandma, who, who uh, checked students into the cafeteria at NNU. Um, I couldn't begin to tell you the number of times I looked up and saw Delane hugging a student who was uh, right on the edge. And as, as they came in with their cards to scan to the library, Delane would just say, how you doing? <laughs> and uh, you shouldn't ask that if you don't care, by the way. Uh, that's not a throwaway phrase. Shouldn't, it shouldn't be a throwaway phrase. Um, and, and sometimes they would just break down and Delane was there. Uh, I, I came to believe over the 23 years um, at the college that there, there is no one more influential in the life of a student, particularly at, at, as they go off to college. There's, and by the way, this isn't the sermon. Uh, th- there's no one more influential in the life of a student than a coach. They're, they're at the top of the heap, way above the chaplain, for sure. And, and then, um, at the college level, a major professor, the, the prof that the students spend the most time with. And, and over the years that I was there, right after the coach and the major professor, I would put the cafeteria lady. And then a rung or two down, the chaplain. It was good to be there and get to be an influence uh, as well. Uh, Jim, I, I, the advice I got when I started pastoring was have a good relationship with the secretary and the custodian and the person that runs the sound. <laughs> because uh, if you're on the outs with the, with the secretary, you'll have to work harder. If you're on the outs with the custodian, things will slide downhill. If you're on the outs with the sound person, They'll get you immediately. Just they'll just shut you off or do that thing that they turn up and and you know what what happens, um, which I think sometimes is is an accident. But I'm not sure about every time. Well, let's let's transition transition into something like the sermon for the morning. Y'all have a favorite commercial. Think about it for a minute. You might even lean over to somebody and say, yeah, I like that. There's always two kinds of commercials for me. There's the kind that, I, that are my favorites, and there's the kind that I have just heard too many times. And that calls for an immediate channel change when, uh, when that one comes on. I, my my, my favorite, current favorite commercials are the Geico insurance commercials. This is not a commercial. I don't have Geico insurance, but... I, I really enjoy the commercials. And my favorite, you're probably wondering, my favorite Geico commercial is the one where the group of young people are running from something. They're terrified, and they're running from something, and, and they don't know what to do next, and they stop and begin to give each other advice. And, and, and the young lady, who turns out to be the smartest in the group, uh, go figure, uh, says, 
why don't we just go get in the running car? And, and the, the alpha male in the group says, no, let's go hide behind the chainsaws. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you get that. And, and then the tagline, right before they go into the Geico commercial, the tagline is, when we're afraid, we make really bad decisions. Folks, that'll preach. When, when we're afraid, we make really bad decisions. This morning's message is kind of part B, or as I said to Jim in, in 21st century speak, uh, this morning's message is kind of last Sunday 2.0. You know, this is sort of the second part of our conversation last Sunday around them and the Christian response to them and living in the world with them and coming to recognize that for the disciple of Jesus Christ, there is no them any longer. Some were uncomfortable with that and, and when I find that I've said something that makes somebody uncomfortable, I immediately look for a way to make them more uncomfortable. And so for that, we go to Paul's epistles in the third chapter of Romans. And Paul doesn't say there's no them. Paul says there's no us. We are all them. We have all sinned and come short of God's glory. There aren't degrees, folks. If, if you think the world is divided between us and them, you, you've forgotten that, that you is them. <laughs> and them is us. And the real tragedy of our time, I think, is that we live in a world where us is afraid of them and them is afraid of us. And so Jesus says at the end of his, what we call the farewell discourse, uh, in, in John chapter 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things that you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. Amen? Yeah, amen. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We need to take a minute to just, uh, and kind of a parentheses around this, we need to take a minute and, and, and just remember, Jesus said, these things I have told you, that in me you might have peace. And I think it's important just to back up for a second and remember what these things are, what Jesus had just told them. Uh, the farewell discourse is the context of the farewell discourse is the upper room, uh, either before or after uh, the serving of the first communion. I'm, I'm not real sure which. Somebody probably knows, but I don't. But it's in that setting. John doesn't really go into the sacrament as such. John spends his time talking about Jesus washing the disciples' feet and the command to love one another. And then the farewell discourse, which goes from about halfway down the page in chapter 13 to the end of chapter 16. And in those chapters, in that discourse, in that talk that Jesus gives the disciples, he, he begins by talking about his coming death. Boy, they're excited to hear that. And then he says, but I'm going to give you a new commandment. The new commandment that I give you is that you love one another the way I love you. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? 
Then the promise of the Holy Spirit and that beautiful passage in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, ask, you know, just uh, by this, you know, you, and you'll bear much fruit and, you know, that whole vine and branch thing, which is, is a, just a, a, a beautiful image and one of the formative image, images for my early uh, walk of faith. But then, he says, don't be surprised, this is the our revised standard, RSV version of, of it's a slight paraphrase, don't be surprised when the world treats you the same way it has treated me. We're about 72 hours from the crucifixion. Keep that in mind. As Jesus says, don't be surprised when the world treats you the same way it treated me. And at the end, he essentially says, Tough times are coming, but I will always be with you. And then that line at the end of the farewell discourse. I've told you this stuff about my death and your responsibility to hang in there and abide with me. My call to you, my command to you that you love one another the way I have loved you. And the fact that things are going to get tough and the world is not going to treat you well. Does it seem a little odd that right after telling us that the world wasn't going to treat us very well, he would say, and by the way, I'm telling you this so that you'll have peace. <laughs> really? Sounds to me like you're telling us this so that we'll get extra deadbolts for the doors and, and uh, stock up on necessary supplies and be ready for the awful things that are coming into the world. But Jesus says, no, I'm telling you these things so that in me you will have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. Duh. That's in the original Greek, by the way. <laughs> Duh. But I've told you these things so that, and get this because it's really important, as long as you remain in me, you will have peace. Jesus calls his disciples to live at peace, not in peace. Let me see if I can unpack that for a minute. Some of us live as though we're on the road to try to find peace. We're marching toward, we're trying to do the things that will bring us peace. Jesus is saying to us that for the Christian, for the disciple, peace is not the goal toward which we move. But peace is the way in which we move. If you abide in my words and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. These things I have told you, good things, bad things, tough things, exciting things, these things I have told you so that as long as you remain in me, you will be a person who lives in peace. You will not be afraid. I may have already said this. I don't know that I've ever preached three sermons without saying it once. But the great danger for the American church is not that we have or will come to believe what the world believes. It's not going to happen. I, I know some folks are really nervous about orthodoxy and about believing the right stuff and 
and the world's trying to get you to believe this, and the world's trying to get you to believe that. That's not the danger that the American church faces. The American church doesn't face the danger of coming to believe what the world believes. The American church faces the danger of coming to fear what the world fears. And the world fears them <laughs> in whatever form them takes. The world is afraid of them. And into this environment comes Jesus, who says more often than he says anything, or at least it's recorded more often than anything Jesus said, who says to his disciples, well, you know what it is, don't you? Don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid of the weather. Don't be afraid of the evil one. Don't be afraid of the government, for goodness sakes. Don't even be afraid. Boy, this is where it, the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Don't even be afraid of those who can just take your life. <laughs> isn't that it? We're going to get to that one in just a minute. The great danger of the church in this day is not that we'll come to believe the wrong stuff. It's that we'll come to fear stuff. And we'll live our lives in fear. And like the four teenagers running to the chainsaws, we make terrible decisions when we're afraid. Well, let's see where we go from here. Oh, I know. Let's go back to Luke 15 to the Pharisees for a minute. Remember the grumbling Pharisees that were upset about them and the fact that Jesus spent so much time with them and seemed to actually enjoy being with them. The question is, what was their problem with them? Why was it that they were grumbling? And I've come to believe from that story and some others where the scribes and the Pharisees come up. And remember, scribes and the Pharisees get, all, get really bad press in the New Testament. But the fact is, these were men who were really, really trying to live out their faith as they understood it. These, these were very sincere folk who made sacrifice all the time to, to be in what they believed to be the center of God's covenant call for Israel. Uh, the Pharisees weren't the worst people around. They were committed to their faith. They were committed to living this out in the way that they had come to understand it needed to be lived. Their problem, I am convinced, is that they were primarily motivated at this point in their lives and at this point in the development of the Jewish faith, living under the oppression of the Roman government and all that stuff. I'm convinced that they were just scared. They were afraid. I think they were afraid of, of three things. And we're going to talk about each one of these for a few minutes. I think they were afraid of change. I think they were afraid of their own mortality, the fact that at some point they weren't going to be there anymore. And I think, finally, they were afraid of, of being fully known, of being discovered. And I, I think we have a tendency to be afraid of the same things. 
Well, let's talk about fear of change. Um, Mark Twain uh, once said that the only people who welcome change are wet babies. And moms, you know very well that wet babies don't welcome change with a smile. They're glad to have been changed, but they will often scream through the process. We struggle with change, and the Pharisees believed that if these people came in, things would change, and they're right. Um, told Bill before the message that I was going to skate on some thin ice this morning, so, so if you hear stuff cracking, it, it'll be okay. It's just... It's just cracking under you, not me. <laughs> the church today, the American church, needs to be really, really careful with the way we use the word conservative. Um, one, yeah, I just heard it crack. Um, one dictionary defines the word conservative as, quote, holding to, to, to traditional attitudes and values and cautious about change or innovation typically in relation to politics and religion. Hmm, pretty good. Crack. <laughs> By this definition, being conservative, holding to the things the way they are, being reluctant to change, that doesn't sound like the God of the Bible to me. I've said once that if... if if God had been this kind of conservative, the Bible would be one sentence long, and, and, and I've memorized the whole Bible, as it would be. If God were conservative in this way, the Bible would be this. In the beginning, God looked out over the heavens and the earth and saw that it was chaos and said, I can live with that. Why change? You see, God, the God of the Bible is all about change. Creation is about change. Exodus is about change. Calvary, for goodness sakes, is about change. Salvation is about change. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has changed. The Pharisees thought if those people were welcome, things would change, and they were right. My, my favorite change story in the New Testament is the, is the story of Peter after the resurrection, after the ascension. The church is beginning to grow like crazy, but mostly among Jewish folk. And, and, and then Peter gets a knock on the door and an invitation to go visit a, a, a Gentile military person and, 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 and to go, see this kind of fits into last week's message, doesn't it? And, and to go to that Gentile's home, this is a big deal for Jewish Peter who has never gone to a Gentile's home and he's now being called to go make a pastoral call on one of them and he's up on the roof praying for guidance. I suspect he's up on the room asking God to send somebody else. <laughs> and what happens 
is he sees the vision of this sheet being lowered down and the and the sheet is 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 full of bacon and hot dogs and all kinds of other incredibly good food that Jews didn't eat. <laughs> and he said, Lord, I've never eaten any of that stuff. My, my favorite Old Testament prof, uh, Wendell Bowes at the college, was asked once why the prohibition against pork in Scripture. Why did God choose pork? And, and there's, there's been this interpretation about health and, you know, if it's not cooked right, and, and Dr. Bose, who knows a lot more about this stuff than I ever will, said, no, that doesn't hold up. People have always known how to cook pork. And, and Dr. Bose says, he says, my best guess is that the Jews were prohibited from eating pork because God knew it was the best food out there, and if they would sacrifice that, they would do anything for him. If you'll go through your whole life and not eat bacon, you're committed. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, so don't, you know, um, don't go home and throw out your bacon. On the other hand, if you want to get rid of your bacon, uh, there's, a, there's a freezer in the parsonage right across the, right across the street. Do you, do you get the challenge to Peter? Jewish dietary laws had been extremely important to Peter. Seeing the gospel move forward was extremely important to Peter. Peter's called to go to meet with one of them. And he can't quite bring himself to do it. And God brings him a vision of change. A vision that says, there's a whole world out there that needs me. And in order to reach that world, stuff probably needs to change. I read once, uh, and I'm going to blame somebody else for saying this, uh, that most churches really don't want to grow. They just desperately don't want to die. And they know that in order to not die, they need to bring in a few new people along the way. But they are afraid sometimes that if we bring in too many people or too many of those people, things will change. And you're right, they will. But the God of the Bible is the God of change. Creation was about change. Calvary was about change. Salvation is about change. And God calls us to stop being afraid of change. I know, I know. The message has to be the same, but the, yeah, I know, I know. But here's what I know. It's our fear of change. Our fear of change that keeps us from moving in directions that God wants us to move. The second thing, I think, it, the scribes and Pharisees are afraid of losing their security and their status, which in the end, really, is, is about their fear of their own mortality. Someone has said that all fear is an expression of our fear of death. It, it, you know, the old illustration that if you want to know what an impression you've made in the world, put your hand in a bucket of water and then take it out and see how much of an impression has been left. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? Isn't that awful? 
I, I, I have realized that once you take your hand out of the water, there's, there's no impression left. What I have come to believe, though, is that if you walk with the Lord your whole life and, and you take it out of the water, the water's better than it was when you first put it in. That's what I believe. But there is this fear that we're going to be gone one of these days. Whether it's dying or retiring or moving or somebody else takes over that Sunday school class or, you know, what, whatever it is, it is the fear of our own limited time and our own limited resources. Let me share with you, if you're worried about that, that the heart of the heart of the Christian gospel is our belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in our affirmation that in Christ, in the resurrection, is the ultimate defeat of death. And we're afraid of this because we're not sure we trust God. We're not sure we trust this whole resurrection. And this is not new. This was at the heart of the very first temptation, wasn't it? This is, this is the serpent talking to Eve. And I don't disagree with the Apostle Paul very often, but, but I, I think the Apostle Paul does not give Eve the credit she deserves in this whole exchange with the serpent thing. Um, you, know, he, you know, he says, Eve sinned first, and that, you know. Eve, Eve gives in after a half-hour theological debate with a snake. That's impressive. Adam, on the other hand, gives in as soon as Eve says, try this. Oh, cool. <laughs> so Eve sinned first, but Adam sinned fast. That's, that's all I want to say. Just, just help, help Eve out a little bit. But the temptation of Eve is simply the temptation to trust or not trust God. You remember the serpent quotes scripture? See, that's really impressive. I don't know that I'm not buying in when a snake quotes scripture. to me. Anyway, um, I'm just saying it was the heavy, you know. Um, Eve said, God has said you shall not eat. And the serpent said, has God really said you shall not eat? Yes. Well, I know he has, but this is the reason God doesn't want you to eat is because there is stuff out there for you. There is knowledge out there for you. You know, God doesn't want you to eat that because God doesn't want you to be like God. Oh, I might be missing something. The temptation of Eve is a temptation to not trust God. And for the Christian, for the disciple of Jesus, the fear of our own mortality is grounded in the temptation to not trust God. You see, Jesus said, if, if you've come to me by faith, you've already passed over from death to life. He said to the disciples, don't be afraid of those who can only take your life. Th that's another way of saying, don't be afraid of anybody. Because the worst they can do to you is end this. But if we are in Christ, 
in a real sense, oh, I love Paul here, no argument with Paul here, in a very real sense, if we are in Christ, it is no longer we who live, but Christ in us. And if we are in him and he is in us, we will be at peace, and we will be afraid of no one or nothing. We have been set free from what really is the most fundamental of all fears. In Christ's death, you know, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll never die. And we've all been to too many funerals to know we can't take that literally, right? But Jesus also says, if you believe in me, you've already passed over. You've already passed One of the, the, the most beautiful lines I've ever heard at a funeral, wish it had been mine, I, I've stolen it and quoted it. One of the most beautiful lines I've ever heard at a funeral was a person talking about a dear saint who had walked for years with the Lord who said this, when they passed away, the only thing that changed was the scenery. Isn't that something? When they passed away, the only thing that changed for them was the scenery. They stepped from the presence of God into the presence of God. And the scenery got better. That's a beautiful thought and a, and a tremendous aspiration. To live in the kingdom, to live at peace with the world around us in a way that we can act, love, live free from fear. Let me see if I can find a little more thin ice just for a minute. The fear of our own death, we need to set that aside. But we need to absolutely reject those who would tell us that we need to be afraid about the fear of the death of the church. I, I'm hearing it from both sides right now that if we elect them, it's all over. <laughs> and the other side is responding with such grace by saying, no, actually, if you elect them, it's all over. <laughs> no, it's not. And if anybody tells you that the future of the church of Jesus Christ depends on who gets elected in November, they are lying to you. The future of the church of Jesus Christ is in the hands is in the hands of the Holy Spirit. The greatest threat to the church has never been from outside. It's always been from people doing dumb stuff on the inside. The fact that Christians haven't killed the church in the last 2000 years is all the proof you need in the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Don't don't do anything these days out of fear. When we act out of fear, we make stupid decisions. And, and by the way, nobody's hands are clean right now in our country. Everybody is telling you to be afraid of them. Stop it. You can't love who you fear. It's not possible to love who you fear. 
there, there will never be a day in my life that I love spiders. It ain't going to happen. Amen. <laughs> but I pray that I will never say there will never be a day in my life that I won't love them because I'm afraid of them. Well, last thing. Oh, wait a minute. I've got a big star next to something I haven't said yet. <laughs> Christ, I'm going to read this. Christ doesn't come to simply cuddle us until we reach the coffin. He comes to set us free from the fear of our own death that drives us to use others, to fear others, and to hate others. In a vain attempt to somehow make our special place in this limited time, if he rose again, this is where the star is, <laughs> if he rose again, the end is not the end. And if I live as if the end is not the end, I'll be willing to live without fear of the end. If everybody who argues for the truth of the resurrection really believed in the resurrection, Christians would be doing a lot more crazy stuff, reckless, selfless things in an all-out effort to see the kingdom of God come to pass on this earth as it is in heaven. Finally, what I think may be the greatest fear at all of all, and, and that is the fear of being found out, the fear of being really known, really discovered as who we are. John says in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Now, go back to Paul for a second. We're all them. This isn't talking about them. This is talking about us. Because we've all sinned and we've all come short of God's glory, right? And so we're all hesitant to come into full light because that means we're going to be fully known. Whoever lives by the truth comes to, into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I, I think the Pharisees, in the end, were afraid of being discovered. You remember that really harsh thing that Jesus said to them? You're like whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside but you're full of death and decay on the inside. I wonder, how many, I wonder how many people here, I wonder how many people in the church have whitewashed the outside because that's what the church expects. Inside, we hope nobody knows. We hope nobody figures it out. There are two stories that, that a few years ago became one story for me, the beginning and the end story for me. The first is back to the Garden of Eden. The first is uh, Adam right after the fall. You know, the apple was good, but then some things happened. And, and God came to make his evening appointment with Adam. Remember the, in Genesis it says God would come and walk in the cool of the evening? I've always used that as an excuse to not be a morning person. 
Um, <laughs> God came to Adam, and they would, they would walk in the cool of the evening through the garden together. And, and on this particular evening, God came, and Adam wasn't where he usually was. And so God went looking for him, and, and, he, and he found Adam hiding behind a bush. And, and God said, Adam, why, why are you hiding behind a bush? And Adam said, well, that woman you gave me, she gave me this apple. Man, it started right away, didn't it? Um, and I hid because I was naked and ashamed. Now, I, I, for the visual people, this may be a rough couple of minutes, but... Um, Every time they had walked in the garden, Adam was naked. Right? We, we all on the same page here? But after not trusting God and failing, Adam hides in the bushes because he realizes his nakedness and he is afraid of God. He's afraid God will see him as he is. The second story, which I had never really seen as part of that story until just a couple of years ago. The second story is another naked story. <laughs> Again, I, apologies. Um, one afternoon on a cross, Jesus is hanging between two thieves. One of whom is mocking Jesus and saying, if you're the son of God, why don't you get us out of this mess? And, and the other reprimands the Son of God. And you need to understand that these guys are, are dressed appropriately for a crucifying, which means they're dressed the same way Adam was in the garden. Adam, Adam grows up, lives in a perfect environment, and sins once and hides because he doesn't want God to see him as he is. And at the close of the redemption story, a man who has sinned all his life in every way you can imagine, in the midst of a fallen world, hangs naked in front of Jesus and says, remember me. Here I am. What you see is who I is. <laughs> and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And, and I, I've heard people argue that you can't go to heaven without being saved. And, and I'll tell you what, there is no greater sign of having actually been saved than standing naked in front of God and saying, here I am. This is me. This is me. My great fear for the church is that there are folk who do it all right and on the outside everything's painted and looks good. But we are terrified that someday God might see us naked for who we are. I'm going to read this from my 
good Catholic friend, Father Thomas Merton. Merton says, we must not only see ourselves as we are, in all our nothingness and insignificance, we must not only learn to love and appreciate our own emptiness, but we must accept completely the reality of our life as it is. Remember me. We must accept completely the reality of our life as it is because it is this very reality which Christ wills to take to himself and which he transforms and sanctifies into his own image and likeness. I, I think that the greatest potential tragedy in the church is, is that there are folk who ride the pews through their entire life terrified of, of being seen naked, being seen as they are. And we're like Adam, who, who messed up once, and, and we don't want anybody to find out. <laughs> and mostly we don't want God to find out. Isn't that silly? Because, <laughs> by the way, when God said, Adam, where are you? He knew. <laughs> and when God said, Adam, why are you hiding? He knew. And when God said, Adam, what have you done? He knew. But it was Adam's unwillingness to stand up and say, yep, here I am. <laughs> I waited for you where we usually meet to walk, and I got a problem, and I need to talk to you about it. Boy, that would have been a different story. Some of us are afraid of change. All of us at one time or another have been afraid of, of losing it, of, of the lack of resource, the lack of opportunity, the lack of time. The fact that someday we're going to die and we'll take our fists out of the water and it'll be like we were never there. God is the God of change and of transformation. Death is a lie, folks. <laughs> Ain't no such thing for a child of God. You have already passed from death to life. We need to start living like we're alive, don't we? I hate roller coasters. My favorite place in the amusement park is the bench where the line starts to go on the roller coaster. That is where you will find me when my family is on the roller coaster. But my family will enjoy the amusement park a lot more than I will because they love the roller coasters. <laughs> what in the world does that have to do with anything? Life is a lot more exciting when you're not afraid of stuff. There is no spiritual work of grace that will change my mind about roller coasters, by the way. They are of the devil. <laughs> oh, no, no, you know they're not. When Jesus got ready to go to Jerusalem, uh, and, and he had told him he was going to die, I love Thomas' response. You know, doubting Thomas that gets such bad press later. Thomas says, hey, let's all go die with him. That's living on the roller coaster. You know, I'm not afraid of this. Let's go do whatever it is that we need to do. Let's go be a part of that. And finally, I just pray that there's nobody here that's hiding in the bushes because you think God doesn't know you're naked. 
and you're hoping to get through without anybody discovering. I, I want to I invite you to climb up on the cross next to the thief and just, <laughs> you know. Well, Lord, here I am. This is me. You can see it all. Remember me. That's conversion. That's change. That's freedom. Jesus says to you, don't be afraid. The world is saying to you, be afraid. Of them, of them, of them, of that, of this, of the other thing. I want to close with a, with a, a verse from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. Let's see. It's supposed to come up on the screen. Is it? Have we got it? We don't have it. Yep. There we do. Nope. Nope, that's not it. You got another one? Okay, I'll just read it. Trust me, it's in the Bible. You can check later. It'll be in your Bible too. Hebrews 13, 6. So we can say with confidence. I like that just by itself. So we can say with confidence. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Would, would, you, would you repeat that with me? We may have to do it a couple of times to get all the words right. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Okay, now we're going to pick up a few more. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Now we need to say it with confidence because that's what it says here. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? And the answer is nothing that really matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your life-giving presence. Thank you for setting us free from sin. Thank you for setting us free for hope. Thank you for setting us free from fear. Forgive us when, like Adam, we hide our stuff in the bushes because we're afraid to let you see it. Forgive us when we think there's not enough to go around so we have to be afraid of those we think might take it. Forgive us when we get so tied to the way things are that we're afraid to see the way they could be. And take us uh, fearlessly into the next week. Help us to get on a roller coaster or two in the week ahead and see what you have in store for your fearless people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Don't be afraid of anything but spiders. <laughs>